You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. Uh, We're going to be in a few different scriptures this morning, but if you open to anywhere around Matthew 5, uh, you'll be in the right place. Uh, Before we turn our attention there, I'll introduce myself. My name is Jamin. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting here at Citizens, we're so thrilled to have you. If you're watching online, thank you so much for uh, tuning in this morning. Uh, I do have uh, an update for you on our COVID policies and protocols moving forward. Uh, We've been trying to inch kind of back towards normal or whatever our new normal uh, is going to be at the end of all of this. And so uh, starting on May 30th, Uh, What we're going to do is we're going to make some changes. So on May 30th, uh, both of our services will be mask optional. Uh, We will no longer require registration, and we will no longer be doing distancing in either of our services. And so uh, it's a a pretty big step back towards what uh, our new normal is going to be. Obviously, uh, you can wear a mask in either service if you want to. Uh, But on May 30th, starting May 30th, uh, both services will be mask optional. We will have a uh, space in the foyer um, that is reserved for those who maybe aren't comfortable coming in the room. There will be distancing out there and more restrictions out there in the foyer. Uh, But that's uh, what we're doing. That's where we're headed. So starting May 30th, no more registration. uh, And all God's people said? And then mask optional in both services and then uh, no more distancing. Uh, as always, uh, thank you so much for the ways in which you've been so kind and patient and uh, charitable with us as we've tried to navigate this. Uh, very complicated. And if there's any questions or concerns, please uh, direct those to me or Adam Hawkins or one of our other elders, but mostly Adam Hawkins. So. <laughs> Uh, One of our favorite things to do as a family is watch movies together. Uh, I talk about that a lot. I've I've told that to you before. Uh, I I may have shared this, but every year, we have a tradition that we started a couple years ago. Every year uh, on New Year's Eve, we will make a list of the best movies that we watched uh, that year. And then we will pick from that list and we will vote on the best movie of the year. And so uh, I don't know about you, but we watched a ton of movies in 2020 uh, for a lot of reasons, Uh, but we narrowed it down to the best ones that we watched in 2020. I think it was like uh, Spies in Disguise was on that list. I have young kids, if you don't know, so that's going to explain the rest of this. But uh, And then uh, Croods 2 was on that list. The live-action Mulan remake was on that list, which uh, I thought was okay. I just, I missed Eddie Murphy a lot in that. But uh, And then the, the, the movie that we ultimately voted on as the best movie of 2020 uh, was a, a movie called Onward. You seen it? Yeah. It's a uh, Disney Pixar movie with uh, Tom Holland and Chris Pratt. It came out, I think, in March of 2020. Uh, and it's a really, really great movie. It's about two elf brothers named Ian and Barley. Barley is the older brother. Ian's the younger brother. And the movie is about uh, their quest to spend one more day with their dad. Their father had had passed away when both boys were were really young, when the younger brother was an infant. And so, but what they discovered is they discovered that there's this magic rock, and if they take that magic rock to this magic place, then they actually get to spend one more day uh, with their dad. And so the movie's about two sons just trying to spend more time with dad. It's like, okay, thank you, Disney, right? Uh, I don't know if you're like this, but that's the kind of movie that if I watch by myself, I might be okay. But when I watch it with my kids, I'm an absolute mess, like just a mess. 
My kids look over, they're like, Dad, are you crying? I'm like, what? No, it's, it's allergies, you know? And they're like, Dad, it's the, it's the opening credits, Dad, you know? <laughs> Just me? Okay, sorry, I'm not a robot. Anyway, there's this thing, though, that happens in the movie where as they're on this quest, the older brother who got more time with dad before he died, the older brother will teach the younger brother about their dad. He'll tell him about what their dad was like. He'll help him remember maybe different things that he didn't get to experience about his dad, and he'll describe his, his father. And it's basically a lot of the movie is the older brother talking to the younger brother about their father. And it's really sweet, and it's special, and, and that's all I'll say because I don't want to spoil it. So after the movie ended... There was something that I just observed and was mindful of throughout the movie. And so after it ended, I asked the kids what they thought. And, and I don't do this every time, but I was like, I want to I share something with you. Um, and, and I don't do it every time we watch a movie because I don't want to preach sermons to them, even though they love that, right? Um, I just said, you know, the older brother is a lot like Jesus. And my seven-year-old daughter goes, uh, Dad, Jesus isn't an elf. Like, okay. <laughs> Thank you, theologian. Um, I said, no, Jesus is not. But what I mean is the older brother uh, talked to the younger brother about their dad because he wanted him to know their dad like he did. He wanted his younger brother to know his father like he did. And one of the things that Jesus came to do is to teach us about our father in heaven. But not just to teach us as our father in heaven as a teacher, but to teach us of our, as our father about our father in heaven as a brother. And in his life and in his words, he reveals him to us. He's an older brother to us revealing our shared father who is in heaven, and, and he knows him best, and he was loved by him first. And, and as I'm watching that movie and explaining that to them, that was front of mind for me only because I had been studying the Sermon on the Mount, the sermon series that we're in. I don't know that I would have picked up on that had we not been in this sermon series. I don't know that I think of Jesus often in those terms of being a brother. I wonder if you do. I wonder if you think of him like that. I wonder if, if that's a lens through which you think of your relationship to Jesus. We're in the middle of a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and, and there are a few roles that could describe Jesus in the sermon. He plays the role of teacher, and he explains the Old Testament. He plays the role of philosopher, and he describes the good life, the flourishing life. He plays the role of prophet, declaring that the kingdom both is and is to come. But he also plays the role of brother, and he reveals and describes and invites us to know his Father throughout the sermon. We said this last week, but Jesus refers to God as Father 17 times in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the largest concentration of references to God as Father in all of the Bible. And in that, one of the major themes that's thread throughout the sermon is the fatherhood of God and the desire for the Son that His followers would rightly know and love the Father. So let me just take a half step back and lay some, some theological groundwork before we move on. God is a trinity. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. That's how he's revealed himself to us. He is three persons, one God. Do I fully comprehend it? No. In fact, I take great comfort in what the uh, church father, the Egyptian theologian Athanasius, what he said about the Trinity. He said, if you deny it, you'll lose your soul. If you try to understand it, you'll lose your mind. There's a, just a ton of complexity and mystery that's tied up in it. But here's what we know. God is Trinitarian. That's what he's revealed about himself. There is community and there is relationship within God. And God describes that relationship as he's trying to say, here's what me being a trinity is like and how I relate. He describes it through familial language, father, son, and spirit. What existed before creation is God three in one. And that relationship was familial, is familial. And it's one of reciprocal, perfect, complete love. In fact, C.S. Lewis 
talks about this in Mere Christianity. I don't remember what chapter, but he says to say that God is love, it has no meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Meaning if, if God was a single person, then before the world was made, there was nothing to love. And if he's a single person, then before the world was made, he could not have been loved, but he would have simply been a static being. And if he only became a God of love as one person after creating, then that love that he has for creation would be interdependent on what he created. And so it wouldn't be divine love. It would be fragile. It would be fickle. It would be more like human love. Instead, we believe that before he made the world, God existed in this dynamic three-person relationship. Uh, C.S. Lewis describes it as this kind of Trinitarian dance, and God exists as this Trinity before anything is made, and that relationship is familial. That's how he defines it, Father, Son, and Spirit. And then it's out of that Trinitarian love, out of that dynamic reciprocal relationship of familial love, he creates. He creates a world out of that love so that he might, his was, was so wonderful about God that he might welcome creation into that love that he might welcome, namely, humans, his people, his image into that Trinitarian love. Consider these verses. John 17, this is Jesus praying to God before he goes to the cross, and he says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus is praying, and I want other people to enter into this relationship with you, the very one that we had before anything was ever created, the love that we had that was ours that we shared before anything else was made. Romans 8, Paul writes, and we know all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purposes, for who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, it says. So what is the good that God is working out? The good that he's working out is that the Father sent the Son to call and save, that the Son might have many brothers and sisters because the Father wants to welcome in more and more children. Jesus prays again in John 17, love them even as you have loved me. Think about that. The Son prays for you to the Father and asks the Father to love you even as he's loved the Son with the same degree of love that the Father has for the Son and has had for the Son for forever since before creation. Not only that, but the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit, in Romans, it says he plays a role. Just a few verses up in Romans 8, it says you've been given what kind of spirit? Fear? No. Adoption. The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. God is a familial God who existed in familial love and created out of that love, and even in the face of rebellion from that creation, is Father, Son, and Spirit committed to welcoming, heart-changed, blood-bought, forgiven, freed, cleansed, adopted sons and daughters into his family. Can you believe it? The sum total of Trinitarian love for you amounts to welcoming you into that family where the Spirit floods your life with adoption, the Son covers you as a brother, and the Father loves you as his child. It's why John declares how great is the love the Father lavished on us that we should be called children of God. You, Christian, if you have repented of your sins and if you have trusted in Jesus as your Savior and King, you are a child of God. You have a Father in heaven. Would you like to know what he's like? Would you like to know what's true about that Father? Well, our older brother Jesus spends an entire sermon telling us and answering that question. If we were to take 
the sermon and just synthesize it. It could be summarized in two points, two things that Jesus says about our Father. He is good for you, and he's good to you. That's what kind of father he is. He's good for you, and he's good to you. You have a father in heaven, and what he's like is he's good for you, and he's good to you. We're going to consider four sets of scriptures where Jesus tells us about our father. We've already done the work in most of these explaining what they mean in the context of the sermon, so I'm only considering them through the question of what it says about God as father. If you want the full scope of what they mean, we can go back and and check that out. Consider these verses. Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 9. They'll be on the screen behind me. You have a father in heaven. He's good for you. He's good to you. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Chapter 5, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. These verses tell us that our God, our Father in heaven, he's good for us because he's worth imitating. Uh, He is worth being, he is the kind of father about which we can say, I hope I'm like him someday. Uh, Jesus says, if you're a peacemaker, you'll be called children of God. If you love your enemies, you'll be called children of God. If you remember when we did the work in these passages, uh, these verses are not saying being a peacemaker is the way you earn your way into God's family or loving your enemies is the way that you earn your way into God's family. It's not saying that. It's saying people who are peacemakers, they look like their father in heaven because their father in heaven is a peacemaker. People who love their enemies look like their father because he loves their enemies. Our father is a peacemaking, enemy-loving father, and that speaks to his character. He's good. He's good. In his, very, in his very character, he is holy and just and full of mercy and patience and kindness. And to be his child and to understand that that's what he's like, to understand his heart, is to want to be like him. Gosh, the the highest compliment someone could pay you, Christian, the highest compliment someone could pay us, Christian, is that we're godly, that we look like God, that we look like our Father who's in heaven. Like many in the room, maybe you know the pride that comes, the good pride that comes with having an earthly father who is a good man. I know that. There's something stabilizing about that. Many in the room, maybe many more in the room, know the pain of having an earthly father who's not a good man or selfish maybe or absent or, or or, or self-absorbed, not worth imitating, right? And there's a unique grief that comes with that, if that was your experience. But my friend, wherever you land in that, you have a father in heaven who is high character. He's good. He's never lied. His faithfulness extends for generations. He's powerful and strong. And at the same time, he speaks lovingly in a whisper. Right now, the word the angels use to describe him is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty because there's something so good and true and beautiful about him that eternal worship is the only right response. That's who he is. He's good. You have a heavenly father who is perfect, and he's worth being like. He is the kind of father with the kind of character that we who are called his sons and daughters, it's the great boast of our life, the humble boast of the life, is that we would be like him, not just become his father, his his, his children in our salvation, but that our very lives would point to him. And so over and again, what Jesus will do is he will reveal to us and remind us of the goodness of the Father to awaken in us and encourage us towards a desire to live a life that reflects on earth our Father who is in heaven. And that's good for us to know him like that. It's good for us to become like him like that. Consider these verses, chapter 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. 
Chapter 7, verse 21. We'll take a, a whole Sunday on this when we get to it. So we won't answer every question now. But I want to highlight the end of it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So not only is he good for you in that he's worth being like, he's good for you. You have a Father in heaven who's good for you in that he's worth living for. He's worth uh, orienting your life around. He's worth submitting your dreams to and your will to and your obedience to and your loves to. Verse 16, he says, live your life. Let your light shine in such a way that people glorify your Father in heaven. He's worth glorifying. In chapter 7, he says, the mark of God's true children is that they do the will of the Father. He's worth obeying. We have a Father in heaven who's good for us in that we remember that this life is not about us. If he is Father in heaven, if he's worthy of our worship and worthy of our obedience, we are his children. That means we submit our lives to his loving, fatherly leadership and will. So any parent with young children knows this, or any, any parent of any kind of child knows this. If you've been around young kids, you know one of the most important lessons for young children to learn is that they're not in charge. It's just one of the most important lessons for them to learn. And the earlier they learn it, the better it is for them, right? Um, if they're given authority in the home that they don't know what to do with, it seldom goes well. Like if they're in charge of their diet, they will only eat what's bad for them. If they're in charge of their play, they'll end up in the street and eventually something's caught on fire, right? If they're in charge of their uh, sleep, they will never go to bed. If they're in charge of their sleep, they will never go to bed, right? My son yesterday asked me, and he had to have heard this off of a show or, or, or from a bad influence or something, but he said, hey, Dad, can we have a yes day soon? I said, I didn't know. I've never heard of this. Have you heard of this? I said, what's a yes day? And he said, oh, well, it's a, it's a whole day where you and mom say yes to everything. <laughs> what? And, and he said it like I should have known that that's a thing, right? And I said, son, no. <laughs> and he said, dad, why? I said, first, I can't afford that. I can't afford a yes day. If we said yes to everything, we'd run out of all of our money by lunchtime, right? No, we can't have a yes day. That's what your grandparents are for, right? <laughs> and then he explained, well, no, Dad, there are rules and there are limits. And so I, I told him I'd think about it. Uh, maybe, how about a maybe day? I like those days. Uh, but our kids are, just to be candid with you, our kids here know a lot, and, and we believe it's good for them. Like, they need love, and, and that love includes loving authority, and, and one of the most loving things we can do for our kids is to teach them to handle being told no. Tell them no, and then shepherd them in dealing with no, and, and we want to, hear me, we want to say yes as much as we can. We have a ton of fun. We laugh a lot, and we want to do those things as much as we can, but what I know is if they don't learn to deal with being told no in our home, I have failed to prepare them for life outside of my home. Life outside of my home is going to be filled with no. Filled with no. Filled with things they can't control. Filled with things they want that are not good for them. And here's what I know. The temper tantrum at 3 does not compare to the tantrum at 13 or at 23 or at 33. The older the person, the more destructive the fit. And what is the lesson that we're trying to teach our kids in that, and what, what is the importance of them learning those limits to life, learning the limits of their control, learning to be able to handle uh, things not going the way they want? The lesson is that they're not God. It's not, a, 
exerting our authority to get some sort of power trip. It's not us simply wanting to say no because we want our life to be easier, right? But all in our home, trying to orient our home, not even around us, but around God. It's helping them see that we live in a world where we're not in charge, helping them see that they are deeply loved, that each and every one of them is fearfully and wonderfully made, but they're not the center of the universe. This is our Father's world. It's His world. And that lesson for our children is the same lesson Jesus has for us in these verses. He teaches us as our brother reveals our father, we're not God. We are deeply loved. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. But that lesson for children also applies for adults. We are not the center of the universe. This is our father's world. It's his world. So let your light shine so that he gets the glory. Let your sonship, let your daughterhood ship Let your belonging to him as his child be known by your obedience to the Father's will, right? And that's freeing for us as his children. I think about the um, G.K. Chesterton quote we've talked about before in his book, Orthodoxy. He says this, how much larger would your life be if yourself could become smaller in it? You would break out of this tiny theater in which your own little plot is always being played and you would find yourself under freer skies. God being father reminds me, reminds you that we don't run the home. We don't run the home. And life becomes larger and freer when I can give up the fool's dream of acting like I can control more than I do. No, no, I exist to bring glory to my father in heaven. That's why I exist. I exist to do the father's will. It's good for me. The father is good for me. Let's consider these passages. Look at chapter six, verse eight. Do not be like them, For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Chapter 6, verse 32. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Chapter 7, verse 11. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Our Father, according to Jesus, our brother, is not just good for us. He's good to us. He's good to us. He knows us. All all of these verses together amounts to this, that God knows you. He knows your needs. and, And at the very least, he wants you to talk to him about what you need as the one who knows you and knows those needs. So if you remember last week, this is very important. The needs have been defined for us somewhat already by God. He teaches us not just to ask for our needs, but he also teaches us what we need. That's in the Lord's Prayer. He says we need daily bread. Ask for daily bread. This is what we need to survive, the food we need, the healing we need. He teaches us uh, to, to ask for those things. I think underneath this is also the wisdom we need, the daily wisdom in life, like Uh, the job changes we're praying about making, where we're going to send our kids to school, relationships and relational decisions we're making, all of that falls under that category. He also says to ask for daily grace, uh, forgiveness that we need for us and the forgiveness that we need to extend to those who have wronged us and sinned against us. And then daily help, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. These are the needs that we talk to God about. He defines the scope of that for us so that when we're talking to him, we're talking to him as someone who has already declared that we've we've already, if you remember, last week, we've already told him who he is, where he is, what he's worth, and what he wants. That's the Lord's Prayer. So the invitation then is to bring those needs to the God who knows you and who knows your needs and believe that you're taking the needs to a father who's good to you, who is good to you. That's the point of verse 11. If even evil men can give good things, how much more a father in heaven 
It means when we talk to God about our needs, if he's good to us, we're believing he's both willing and able to meet those needs, the needs of daily bread and daily grace and daily help. And if he's good to us, he knows our needs. He wants us to tell him about those needs. And in that, in that even exercise, in that obedience, what we're declaring in our hearts is I actually believe that this is the kind of father he is. Okay. Not every ask is a yes, right? Not every prayer is answered the way that we would answer it if we were God. Um, not every need is met this side of Jesus' return. We know that. Some in the room know that more than others do. What's important then is to have a really good memory when it comes to God's answers in our lives. Some of us have a hard time believing God is good to us, not because he hasn't done good in our life, but because we tend to blame God for what we don't have but give ourselves credit for what we do. Some of us have a hard time believing God is good to us, not because he hasn't done good in our life, but because we tend to blame God for what we don't have but give ourselves credit for what we do. And we can't have it both ways, right? It doesn't work like that. If the things missing in our life are his fault, then the good things present in our life are his generosity, at the very least. But often the only list that we keep running is the list of prayers he hasn't answered. And we, friend, we would do so well to remember what he's already given us. We would do well to remember what he's already given us. We would do well to remember life and breath and food and friends or even all the things that he's given us that we didn't ask for, but he would he'd know we would need, right? Let me tell you where to start. You can start with your salvation. Like before you were even born, he knew that need and he made a way to meet that need. The Father gives the good gift of forgiveness and eternal life in and through the death and resurrection of his Son in a heart that remembers that, a heart that is filled with gratitude for the grace that is shown to us in Jesus. That heart can ask boldly for what we need and believe our Father is good to us, even if the answer is not what we hope, because we believe the questions that we most needed answers to we already have in Jesus. We already have in his cross and his resurrection. Friend, would you hear this? If God is one unanswered prayer away from being of no use to you, you have forgotten your salvation. You have forgotten your salvation. What you need more than answers is remembrance. What you need most is remembrance. He is and has been good to you. Now, let me speak to, to just a few of us. Some of you are in a season right now of incredible suffering an incredible loss. And I am, I am so sorry. That, and because of the suffering you're in, you just honestly don't know what to do with verses that say your father gives good things to those who ask. You have been asking and he has not been giving. And it's not, and I know this about you, it's not that you don't remember his faithfulness. It's just that you're desperate for him to hear and desperate for things to change and nothing is changing. And so it's easy to wonder, is he good to me? Is he? There are examples all over the Bible of people who suffer, and that's the question. God, where are you in all this? And if that's you, my friend, I need you to know I don't have a lot of answers. Oh, I, I at least have more I don't knows than answers. The suffering that God allows is truly a mystery to me. It's a mystery to me. But I do know that in a garden, the son, loved by the father, was told no by the father. Jesus asked if this, Jesus prayed, the son prayed to the father and said, if this cup could pass from me, if there's any other way, would you spare me from the cross? The son prayed for a yes and what he got was a no. And that no cost him great suffering and that no, and that no was not a failure of the father's love for the son. 
That no had purpose and it had meaning. The father did not stop being good to the son, but there was good he wanted to do through his son that did not feel good for the son. And I don't have answers for you, but I believe that what Jesus, your brother, would tell you is that you can trust your father. You can trust him. Jesus is one who knows what it's like to suffer. He would say to you, wrap his arm around you, share in your suffering with you and say he is still good to you. And one day the things that are confusing will all make sense. And as you wait for that clarity, would you fight for the faith to believe that you have a good father? And even though he has not answered, it doesn't mean he's left you. And it doesn't mean he's silent. He is good to you. He loves you. Consider these passages. It's our last section. Chapter 6, verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Chapter six, verse nine. Pray then like this, our father in heaven. As a pastor, uh, one of the conversations I have often around God being father is helping people see that that's actually good news because when they hear that God is a father, they're that doesn't immediately register as good news because that relationship has not been a good one, at least on earth. Many people have difficult relationships with their fathers. Many people have difficult relationships with their mothers, and that impacts what this word means too. Moms play such an important role in the shaping of their kids. And so where on both sides, where the parental climate of someone's childhood in life is broken or dysfunctional, that affects how we react when we hear that God's a parent or when we hear God described as a parent. Like some of us had parents who were, we've talked about this before. I've used these categories before, and I, I'll continue to. Some of us had parents who were heavy-handed, like a father or a mother, and that meant yelling, and that meant anger, and, and maybe that meant you never knew what would set them off, and so you never knew how to act, and so home wasn't safe, and love wasn't free. You had to earn it. Or some of us maybe had a father who was hands-off, not heavy-handed and angry, just checked out and absent, and something else always won his heart before you, and you spent a ton of your childhood trying to figure out how to get his attention and affection and, and, and things that should have been yours in abundance were the very things that felt really scarce for you. And, and there's grace. That's not the point. I'm sure some were just doing the best they could with where they were at. But so some of you, my point is this, is some here, Father, and immediately that resonates as someone that I have to work for, or you hear that word, and it's someone whose love is conditional and fickle. I'm reading Phil Knight's biography right now. Uh, he's, well, I'm listening to it on Audible, and I consider that as reading. I need that to be reading just for me. <laughs> he's the founder and creator of Nike. You know who Phil Knight is. And it's interesting. Uh, it's really well written. His story's incredible. But in the first chapter, he talks about starting the company and he talks about what motivated him in those early days of Nike to keep going and to try as hard as he did. And, and what motivated him much of, of what he was after in starting the company was trying to impress a few of the men in his life, his father included. He mentions his college track coach at one point uh, whose approval he really wanted. And here's how he describes it in his book. He says, there was a deep yearning to do something that would impress this man. And he says this, besides my father, there was no man whose approval I craved more. And besides my father, there was no man who gave it less often. So what a sad thing that is. What a sad thing to hear. And maybe the saddest word in that quote is the word crave. Like he describes himself as someone who has a hole in his heart where a father should be. And there's a craving for approval to fill that void. And you know what? Out of that craving, he went on to accomplish incredible things. The desire for approval is a really powerful motivator. It's just a really lonely way to live. 
exhausting way to live. And there's nothing quite as harmful as believing you have to earn approval and love from the people who by definition are supposed to give it freely. Your heavenly father is not like that. He's not like that. See something in these verses. Jesus is talking about prayer, but in teaching us how to pray, he reveals the father's heart. Go into your room, your father who sees in secret, and it's just you and him, and then pray to him and call him father, right? So clear your life. The invitation is to get alone, and the Father who sees in secret just wants to spend time with you and wants you to talk to him and be with him. And don't miss this. If he sees in secret, that means he sees your secrets, knows everything about you, sees everything in you. So the thing we do where we dress ourselves up to get approval from those we want and, and try and say the right thing and put our best foot forward and hide the parts of us that we're embarrassed of or we think would lead to rejection or we filter ourselves so that we appear more acceptable than we are, none of that works with the God who sees in secret. None of it. Who we really are is visible to God. And as we are, who sees all and knows all, what does he want? You. You time with you, conversation with you, because he loves you. He's not heavy-handed. He's not hands-off. He's arms open. And you're not there to earn his approval. It's been given. You're not there to prove that you deserve his love. In Jesus, he loved you before you were even born. Not even the best of fathers on earth can compare to his unrelenting love over you. He is good to you. Your father in heaven, hear me, my friend, my brother, my sister. Your father in heaven accepts you, approves of you, delights in you just as you are. He's good to you. He's good to you. God is a familial God who existed in familial love, and he created out of that love, and even in the face of rebellion from that creation, is Father, Son, and Spirit committed to welcoming heart-changed, blood-bought, forgiven, freed, cleansed, adopted sons and daughters into that family. The sum total of Trinitarian love for you amounts to welcoming you into that family where the Spirit floods your life with adoption. The Son covers you as a brother, and the Father loves you as his child. How great is the love of the Father that he's lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and praise be to our God that he is a father who is good for us and good to us and will be forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for this mercy. We thank you for this grace that you've poured into our lives. I thank you, God, That not only did you create, not only did you make us God, but you've revealed yourself to us that you would have been completely content to just exist for all of eternity as Father, Son, and Spirit in dynamic, reciprocal love. And yet that love was something that in your love you wanted to share. And it would have been enough for you to create a world and leave it especially when that world rejects you. But that love was stronger than death, more powerful than sin. And so you wrote yourself into the story. You sent your son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And you built your family through love and grace and mercy and sacrifice. And we thank you. I don't know all the stories in the room. God, I know that there is someone here who needs a better definition of father. 
and you brought them here to offer it. It's you, our Father in heaven. It's you, good for us and good to us. Accept us right as we are, just as we are, worthy of our worship, worthy of our lives that glorify you. You want to hear our needs, God, and you want to spend time with us, the real us, the unadorned, the unfiltered, just as we are. Would you pray to him, friend? Brother, sister, would you pray now? Would you just call him Father? Jesus, your brother, seated at the right hand of God, interceding for you. Would you talk to him? The Spirit of God is in the room even now. It's not a spirit of fear, but that spirit brings the spirit of adoption, love, approval, acceptance. Would you ask for the faith to believe it?